This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 10th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. How free is your state? What factors contribute to freedom at the state level? And how do states that are relatively more free differ from those that aren't? Jason Sorens is author of Freedom in the 50 States, a report published by the Mercatus Center. We spoke following an event for the report held yesterday. A lot is made of uh, right-to-work laws in a lot of states, and that was uh, part of your uh, assessment. Is the right-to-work law the tail wagging the dog, or can you tell? What do you mean by that? That is, a right-to-work law would come about because of other uh, factors that also contribute to good economic outcomes, Mm -hmm. high levels of freedom, things like that. Yeah, there's something to that. Uh, So you're not going to see... Uh, a state like New York or California or New Jersey or whatever, adopt a right-to-work law. It's just never going to happen, at least not in the foreseeable future. And, of course, those states also tend to have lots of other intrusive regulations that hurt their economy. So I, I don't think you can look at a right-to-work law in isolation. And, um, you know, we've I've actually looked at, try, tried to, to break out different components of our freedom index and look at their effects on... Um, in migration. And really, it's the overall index that does the best job, the overall economic and, and personal freedom indices. Um, so you really can't just point to, to right to work as a silver bullet. It's, um, it, it may contribute. Um, I, th- I think it probably does. Uh, economic theory suggests that it would contribute to economic growth. But it's just one factor among many, including low taxes, um, low labor regulations in other areas like a low minimum wage, um, you know, low health insurance mandates and all the rest. What does it mean that a, a state's fiscal picture is highly centralized? Uh, I'm from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You noted that Kentucky, Kentucky's spending was highly centralized, assuming a, a disproportionate amount of money goes through Frankfurt. That's right. And, and what, are, what, what are the uh, effects of, of that kind of mm-hmm. policy? Well, it means that um, as a, an individual choosing where to live within Kentucky, you have less choice um, in terms of different types of jurisdictions. When a state is very decentralized, that means that different cities, different municipalities, counties um, might have widely varying tax rates. And so you could choose whether you want to live in a place that has high taxes and lots of services, like if you intend to, to put your children through uh, public schools, um, or whether you want to live in a place with um, lower taxes and fewer services. But in a centralized state, you don't get that choice because much more is being run by the state government. Um, municipalities will tend to, to have um, you know, very similar uh, tax rates. In the 90s, uh, and, and even before, there was a, a popular push for local governments to consolidate. That is, this helps us marshal resources in a way that we couldn't otherwise do it. And the complaint was, it's harder to organize uh, people, uh, organize resources, organize all sorts of things. Uh, what do you make of that argument? I'm opposed to municipal consolidation, just as a general rule. Um, there may be a few cases where you can get some efficiencies and there might be some redundancies that you can get rid of through consolidation. But as a general rule, um, a greater number of jurisdictions uh, means A, more choice, and B, more competition among those jurisdictions. Um, so there's a good bit of research out there. Um, I've done some cross-nationally 
um, looking at number of jurisdictions within each country. Um, but Dean Stansel's one economist who's done some work looking at a number of municipal jurisdictions within states in the U.S., and the, the picture is clear. The greater the number of jurisdictions, the lower is government spending and taxation in general. And that's just because, um, you know, if you're, if you're trapped in a big mega jurisdiction and, um, you know, they have really high taxes and a corrupt government, uh, you know, it might be very difficult for you to, to pick up and move a long way away uh, to, to escape uh, those taxes and corruption. So it's better to have more jurisdictions within a metro area so that you can have more competition and more choice for the residents. How did you come up with uh, what counts uh, as a factor for personal freedom? You had uh, civil forfeiture, uh, marijuana laws uh, figured uh, prominently. How did you put that together? Uh, well, we looked at uh, government policies that um, infringed on people's lifestyle choices uh, that do not um, harm others, right? So these are, these are private lifestyle choices like homeschooling your kids, owning and carrying a weapon, um, possessing uh, marijuana, those sorts of things. Uh, th- those don't violate other people's rights, so we think they should, they should be legal for adults. Um, so we looked at, at uh, all those policies um, and weighted them according to how many people were um, adversely affected by them. For instance, how many people get Im- imprisoned or arrested under these laws and um, how important they are. So, for instance, um, um, some states uh, theoretically allow judges to give you a life sentence for a single marijuana conviction. Um, that's, that's a pretty serious violation of your rights if, if the state um, you know, puts you away for the rest of your life. Um, so it doesn't happen to very many people, but it's a very highly salient policy. Um, and so once we do that, we um, put those policies together th- using those weights. We come up with an overall index of personal freedom. Some other uh, indexes that have, have tracked similar things uh, have looked at your proximity to a government or a jurisdiction that has much better policies. Um, is that anything that uh, you might look at in the future, or is that relevant to what you've looked at here? Yeah, we are, um, we are starting to take a look at that. Um, it's a difficult uh, issue to model statistically, but um, we certainly think that, um, that space might matter in one of two ways. Uh, first, states might try to copy policies from neighboring states or nearby states. Um, but second, this speaks more to the, um, the, the question, um, it might be that um, people are more likely to move from a less free state to a freer state when they're right next to each other. So as a less free state, you might feel fewer of the consequences, the negative consequences of your bad policy regime if you're also surrounded by less free states. Uh, think about Rhode Island, for instance. Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii, right. <laughs> um, it might be more difficult for your citizens to escape. Um, but uh, if there's an easy outlet, um, you know, New Hampshire right next to Massachusetts, uh, you know, you look at Massachusetts' uh, tax regime, and it's actually fairly reasonable. Their tax rates are actually lower than you might expect, given that they're such a liberal state. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that New Hampshire is right there, um, whenever Massachusetts raises taxes, uh, people call it the Southern New Hampshire Development Plan, um, because that's what, it, what happens. Jason Sorens is co-author of Freedom in the 50 States, published by the Mercatus Center. You can watch the full event at Cato.org.